We'll be reading from Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8 this morning. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Let us pray. Father God, we just ask you to be with us as um, Justin presents this message to us. Father, I pray that that we can uh, listen and hear uh, what you want to tell us. Father, we pray that we can apply it to our life and and apply it uh, throughout our week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, If you are new with us today, uh, we are going to be starting up the Gospel of Matthew, which is... Uh, as is every book of the Bible, my favorite. Um, and so uh, I'm excited to walk through Matthew verse by verse with you uh, in the days to come. Imagine history as an old man who testifies why the world needs a righteous eternal king. He has personally witnessed the outcome of Adam and Eve's attempt to dethrone God. He has seen the violence, the wars, the bloodshed. He has seen the kings and kingdoms of all shapes and sizes, some of them lasting longer than others, but all of them passing away at some point or another. He was there when Pharaoh puffed up his chest in the face of God, and he was there as Pharaoh's armies floated dead on the waters of the Red Sea. He was there when Nebuchadnezzar boasted in his own might and glory and his power that had built the city of Babylon. And he watched as Nebuchadnezzar went crazy and ate grass like a wild animal. Nebuchadnezzar gave up the throne to Belshazzar, and old man history was there when Belshazzar gave way to the Persian king Darius, and then came Cyrus. And eventually the world shook under the armies of the Greeks, and Alexander the Great, who died young, died from a random illness on conquest, and whose kingdom was then violently divided into four parts. The Greeks fell, and then came the Caesars. And though they claimed to be God on earth, they still died like all other men. One after another, the empires and the kingdoms of the world climaxed and then faded into the dark shadows of history. Palaces, beautiful kingdoms and thrones and wonders of the world now left in rubble and ruin and dust. The old man history can attest to the fact That the world of men is fickle, fragile, and failing. What it needs is a king who will never die, whose reign will never end and will bring everlasting peace to the striving of men, to this torment inside of us that longs for something more. It needs a kingdom that will never shrink, that will never be invaded, that will never be destroyed, a justice that will never be corrupted, a throne that can't be bought by money, And the old man groans from all this turmoil that he has seen. From the death, the destruction, 
and from the decay that he sees and longs for this reign of a perfect king. I can see that old man history weeping at that moment when he thinks back on everything he sees. And it's at that moment that Matthew's gospel steps in to comfort the old man, puts his hand on his shoulder, and tells old man history the good news that such a king and a kingdom has arrived. That the one that history has grown for, that the one that history has wept for, that the one that history has kept his eyes peeled out for, that the one that history knows that we need, that that king has come, the king's name is Jesus, and it is his reign for which the whole world has been groaning since the beginning of time. His kingdom is forever, his throne unmovable, his dominion covering every nation of the earth. His sovereign rule, good and blessed. His sovereign works, effective. His justice and His grace forever. The long-awaited King of history, God in flesh Himself, has come. And mankind's peace and restlessness can finally be ended. That's the good news of Matthew. Now, the New Testament gives us four Gospels, I think, as you know. And you, you, you know them by heart, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four Gospels speak about the same Jesus, the same Savior, but give us four distinct pictures of what this Jesus is and what he did. They all tell the same story of the same hero, but all four have just a little different, unique perspective that is consistent with the other. Mark sees Jesus as the suffering servant, foretold in Isaiah. He is the one who has come, and by his suffering and by his cross, the many are accounted as righteous. Sinners are made clean because of his sacrifice. Luke sees him as the Savior of the world, whose death and resurrection has brought peace to all nations. Now, not just Jews, but Gentiles, Romans, uh, Galatians, Syrophoenicians, Egyptians, Americans can now experience grace and reconciliation with God because Christ is the Savior of all ethnic. John sees him as the only son of God who has seen the Father and knows that no one else but he has seen the Father. And so he has come in the flesh to reveal to mankind, to sinful mankind, God and to show who God is and what he's like. Now, Matthew steps into the scene and we and we see, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John with all four different pictures of Jesus. And we begin to wonder, okay, Matthew, what's unique about your picture? And Matthew tells us, That the Messiah is the one whose coming was promised by prophets of old. The gospel writer looks back on Genesis and the entire Old Testament. And he listens to the beautiful drum beats of the gospel. And the way that it prepared us for Jesus and our Savior. And proclaims him to be the faithful Israel who obeyed God in the wilderness. Who didn't grumble against God. He's the prophet like Moses who has come to bring about a new and better exodus. He is the object of Abraham's faith, and Gentiles from north, south, east, and west will recline and eat at Abraham's table because of Jesus' ministry. He's the son of David, the rightful heir of his father's throne, and his dominion will spread to cover the corners of the earth, just like God's glory will cover from sea to sea. In Matthew's portrait of Christ, Jesus is the king in whom every one of the promises of God are yes and amen. That's why Matthew's gospel is so important. Because going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we see that the one that God has promised to crush the head of the serpent has come. He's come to restore blessing. He's come to bring us back 
to reconciliation with God, and it's his birth that the history of mankind has long waited. Now, Matthew 1.1, as brief as it may be, is pregnant with significant redemption, with the significance of redemption. It says this, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Not much to go on there, right? Just a few words. There are two things that we should see in the short introduction of Jesus. First, Matthew introduces Jesus' life with the words, the book of genealogy, which literally translated can actually mean the book of Genesis, the book of origin. Furthermore, the phrase of genealogy is found, the phrase the book of genealogy is found in Genesis 2, which focuses on creation. So in this subtle illusion, Matthew begins his gospel by pointing all the way back to Genesis. And he's going to end in, in Matthew chapter 28 by talking about the Savior who is with his people even to the end of the age. Matthew 1 presents Jesus as the Alpha. Matthew 28 presents him as the Omega. And at the center of it all is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. His coming is the fulfillment of history, the new beginning, a new history, a new creation, who is coming to make a new mankind after the image of God so that we can glorify him to all the earth. Second, the phrase, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, points back to all the great genealogies of the Old Testament that track the coming of a promised offspring. Now, just to review, moments after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God made a promise that he would give an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And by crushing the head of the serpent, his heel would be bitten, he would die. And yet the fall of man would be over. It would be in him that humanity's exile from the garden sanctuary of God would be completely overturned. The genealogy in Genesis 2 tracks the promise from Shem to Noah, who's a failed redeemer in some sorts, ends up naked and ashamed in the garden just like Adam does. Genesis 5 tracks the promise from Noah to Abraham, who himself dies without seeing God's promises come to complete fulfillment. And then Matthew picks up with Abraham, and he tracks the genealogy to Jesus. Now, I think if we listen closely to these two titles, son of David, son of Abraham, we're going to see the massive gospel implications that God has given us in this. Jesus is the Christ. That's what he calls him. Jesus Christ, which is the Messiah, the anointed king, which is spoken of in Psalm 2. He's the son of David, reaches all the way back. If you want to know the significance of all these titles, you have to go all the way back into your Old Testament, back to 2 Samuel 7. Verses 12 through 13, where God promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's that promise that the son of David, just that title is so pregnant with that because it is this king who belonged in the line of David, whose dominion would be never-ending, that God is foretelling would come. With the death of David's sons, the kings of Judah who came after him, Israel was left waiting for this eternal king. David died, Solomon died, Rehoboam died, Uzziah died, Hezekiah died, Amos died, Manasseh died, and the promised eternal king still had not come. 
Judah continued in its sin and idolatry. Leading up to the point to where even the sons of David are leading the people of God away from God and to idols. And Israel's eventually, just like Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden, kicked out of the promised land. Now, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8, which was just read to you, promises that when this new king comes, when this eternal son of David arrives on the scene, that the exile will be officially over, mankind will be brought back, his name will be Jehovah to scan you. The Lord, my righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Meaning that it is an externosis, an external righteousness that is placed in the coming of this king. If you want to see my righteousness, don't look to me. Look at the Davidic king. Look at the son of David. His reign will bring about a second exodus. And that will overshadow the first exodus. And Israel will be restored. And then in the same line of thinking, Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 pick up saying that David's son will mean the end of slavery and the beginning of the blessed presence of God. Ezekiel 37 verses 24 through 28 go even further when they say that David's son will be the shepherd over his people. And he will lead them and God will build his dwelling place in their midst and he will live with them forever because of the great care of this shepherd. Hosea 3 picks it right back up after that and says that after, a, after generations without a king and a temple, the son of David will come and lead his people back to the goodness of the Lord. Lead his people back, out of exile, back into blessing, back into a restored state where people can experience God's goodness in full. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, proceeds the king riding humbly on a donkey and setting up his rule in Jerusalem from which he will reign from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. And all the enemies of God will be leveled under his reign. Will be humbled, will be broken, crushed because they rebel against God and try to hurt his people. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10 promises that the spirit of the Lord himself will rest on this king. And when he stands the reign, when he stands up from the throne, the nations will be given a signal and we all will flock to the throne room where we will worship the son of David forever. Now, I think you take all this and you just, you just hear that. Now, the term son of David for us might just be something we sing in a Christmas song. It might be something that we're used to hearing once a year whenever you, you, you hear the great sermons of, of the Advent. But to someone who's listening with Old Testament ears, son of David is pregnant with all kinds of hope. All kinds of hope. At the name, the son of David, immediately were evoked in this. uh, the, the, The saving promises evoked of an eternal, sinless, perfect king who will not die, who will not be dead, and his kingdom will not go away. He will end man's exile from God and bring God's glory among the nations. The king who will bring us back into the presence of God. That's the son of David in this genealogy. He's the king who reigns so that you and I can know God and know him fully and experience his goodness and his love and his mercy and his peace and his patience and his kindness, his goodness, his abundant riches. And when that king stands, Venezuelans, Ethiopians, Americans, Chinese, Africans stand up and they worship the one global worldwide king who reigns on our behalf, Jehovah Tiskenu, God our righteousness. 
might just be four words to you. But the old man history, son of David, is not something that pass over. He goes on to say in the genealogy that he's the son of Abraham. Again, Matthew evokes a whole new set of promises. The first one, he evoked all the promises to David. Now he evokes all the promises to Abraham. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12, where God promised Abraham an offspring who would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, if you're listening to Genesis pretty well, then you know Genesis 1 through 11 beats the drum of curse. Curse, 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 curse. Separation from God, alienation from God, exile. And then Genesis 12 comes in and speaks the message of blessing that will come through Abram's line, specifically through his offspring. That includes both a people and a specific person. And it will be through that person and, and through their birth that every nation of the earth, every people group, all nations, all ethnic, will enjoy the blessing of God once more. The blessing of God being divine approval. God will once again be pleased with humanity. Because of the coming of this offspring. God will once again no longer condemn. God will no longer turn his face away. God will no longer push us out. God will no longer drive us out of the Garden of Eden. But his divine approval. Given again. I don't know how many of you have had daddy issues. If you had daddy issues you're probably good in this church. Cause, but, but if you've had daddy issues you know just how badly you want Badly you want your father's approval, right? This is how badly you want to hear, well done, son. Well, according to the gospel, Jesus is the son of Abraham who has come and secured that for us. So that God the Father can now say, well done, this is the son that I am pleased. And because he is pleased in Jesus, he is pleased in us. Because we're in Christ, he looks at us like he looks at his son. Divine approval given again. God's blessing restored. So Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, all talking about this offspring who'd come and restore us back into the place of God's presence where God will happily, not begrudgingly, happily live with his people forever. And so, in one verse, and one half of a verse, in an incomplete thought, Matthew proclaims Jesus as the culmination of the hope of salvation, the end of exile, the restoration of blessing, a new and better Eden, a a place where God's blessing is restored, his presence is given, the eternal king who will reign and guarantee and secure our peace with God. That's just verse 1 of Matthew's gospel. Now, the rest, of the, the rest of the chapter in this genealogy is meant to line out these people to prove that he is who Matthew just said he is. To show that this is truly the Messiah, the promised one. Now, I don't know how many of you think, you know, I just need a good devotional thought this morning. I really need to pick me up. Let's turn to the genealogies. I don't know of anyone that's ever done that. Um, but, I, and, and I, I got to be honest with you, as I was approaching Matthew this week, I was like, I got to write a sermon about a genealogy. They already think I'm boring. Wait till they get this. But as you start working through it, you begin to see the amazing majesty of God as he supersedes over history. As God steps in, he intervenes. He he interferes with human history to make his plan come about. I think we see four lessons from this genealogy. Lesson number one is simply this. 
Man's sin does not hinder God's sovereignty. Man's sin does not hinder God's sovereignty. Now, I think if you look at the names on this list, you should draw to mind not just the faith and obedience of the heroes of the faith, right? I think you should also think of the sin and the weaknesses of them all. Abraham's a great guy. He had great faith. Abraham also faithlessly slept with Hagar and and, and questioned God's promise at one point. He endangered the promise by leading his family to Egypt and lying, lying to Pharaoh. Abraham put the, put the line in danger in many different cases. We read the name Judah, who was a liar and a man-stealer. He, 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 he lied to Tamar, promising her that he would give her a son when his son got old enough. He lied to her, kept her as a lady-in-waiting permanently, not willing to fulfill his promise. And yet it's through Judah and Tamar and Perez that the line of Jesus comes. Judah sold his brother into slavery. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' genealogy is filled with enslavers. Scum of the earth. That's Jesus' line. We read of David, and I I don't know about you, I read the name David, and I've been to the city of David in Jerusalem. It's an amazing place to go. And your heart just kind of pounds and beats to think that David was there. But at the same time, I also think it must have been on one of these houses somewhere that David was walking around looking for a naked Bathsheba. I I just remember sitting in the city of David and thinking, yeah, this is great. This is all the cool parts about David are here, but also all the bad parts where David has Bathsheba marched into his throne room, into his courtroom, where he then takes advantage of her using his position of authority. David's a sexual abuser. Have you ever thought about that? That's in the genealogy of Christ. It goes on to talk about Solomon. Great Solomon built the temple. Great Solomon who built many temples and also built many idols and married many wives. And he himself introduced sacrifice to the idols in Israel. Rehoboam was a fool. Uzziah discarded the word of God, decided that they didn't need priests anymore, and he himself walked into the Holy of Holies and contracted leprosy as a judgment of God. You have Manasseh. Oh, Manasseh is the cherry on the top. Manasseh not only rebuilt all the idolatrous temples and all the idols, as a sign of his kingly affirmation of worshiping idols, he threw his own son alive into the fire and watched him burn alive as a sacrifice to an idol. That's the genealogy of Christ. You hear of the deportation of Israel to Babylon, and it draws to mind all the painful consequences of Israel's sin. Now, what can account for the fact? This is, what, this is what's bizarre to me. As I'm reading through this genealogy, I see all these incredibly deep, wicked sinners that most of us would want nothing to do with if we knew them. And yet, from Abraham to Jesus, it happens exactly what God said. God said, I will send an offspring who will restore blessing. I will send an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. I will send David's son who will reign forever. And guess what? Even with all these twists and turns and roadblocks and hindrances and the sinfulness of man, God is still sovereign. What he said happens. Man's sin did not stop it in the least. Man's sin cannot keep Jesus from coming. Now, just by way of application, how does this encourage us today? 
My friends, if man's sin, if child sacrifice, if adultery, fornication, liars, man-stealers, if they couldn't hinder Jesus' first coming, why do we think anybody's sin will hinder his second? How many of you have had anxiety thinking about the election coming up in January 20? There's no need for anxiety. How many of you find yourselves anxious over thinking of the state of the country or the state of the world or you hear about how many people have turned their backs on God and the genealogy tells you, hey, this isn't the first time that's happened. There's nothing new under the sun. It's bad. It's not as bad as it has been. And yet even in the worst case scenarios, God is sovereign over all and his will is accomplished. There's no need for anxiety. Man's sin cannot hinder and thwart the sovereignty of God. What God says will happen, will happen. Psalm 2 is beautiful. The nations rage. They literally, they literally, when you think of rage, you think of this drooling bulldog that wants to eat you alive, right? The nations rage. They, the peoples plot together in vain. They are coming together to see if they can rebel against the Lord and against his Messiah. And here's what it says in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That is not the response that I'm giving if I find out somebody's drooling over my death. Who wants to kill me and overthrow me. That's not my response. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. And then he says, rage all you want. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Overthrow him. Try to overthrow him. He still sits enthroned. He's the king. Even with a history filled with Manasseh-like Uh, people who kill and steal and destroy. God's king has come. Now, I also think what's true of the world, that gives us encouragement in the world we live in. I think it should give us encouragement in the church that we serve in. I mean, we, we, we have here a complete list of failures in the people of God. We've seen our fair share as, as churches of immoral pastors Wolves in sheep's clothing, church splits, in-house racism, negligence to minister to the oppressed and the abused, and so on. We've seen so much failure in the church that, yes, sometimes people walk away from God because they sense that the church has failed. And the genealogy in Matthew says, my friends, the people of God have always failed. It's a good thing that the promises of God don't rest on his people. The sins of the world will not keep God's promises from happening. And the sins and failures of God's people won't keep his promises from happening. God is sovereign. And at the end of the day, every knee will bow. Even with poor mutts like us. I think of myself in that. That God has put here to represent him. There ain't no one coming to Jesus by looking at me. But the world will still bow. And Jesus will still save. Because God is sovereign. Now, lesson number two. I think we learn from this genealogy that God does not always use the most powerful, the richest, the smartest, or even the most famous people to accomplish his work. More times than not, God's redemptive purposes are pushed forward in unexpected ways and through unexpected people. He works through aged, childless, immigrant, landless Abraham. 
He works through the poor Canaanite woman Tamar and through a sketchy prostitute from Jericho named Rahab. He works through a poor and broken Moabitess widow named Ruth. And when you think about all these women as they're listed off, they didn't list women in genealogies back then. And the whole point of Matthew listing them is he's showing that God is faithful even through the lives of surprising people. He calls shepherd boys like David to be king. He uses even things like a deportation and exile to further his promises. God is a God of strange providence. I don't know if you you realize that. God doesn't work in clean-cut ways. God, God doesn't work in ways that we'd expect. God chooses to use the weak things of the world to confound the wise. The foolish things of the world, uh, the weak things of the world to confound the strong, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's how God works. So that by the end of this genealogy, you're left saying, look at what God did, not look at what these people did. There's not, there's not very many oppressive people in this list. A lot of weak people, broken people. It shows that the kingdom of God truly is like a tiny mustard seed that you wouldn't you wouldn't put any hope of it becoming the tallest tree in the garden. Now, this gives me hope as a pastor. God can work through small churches. God can work through elderly people who feel washed up. God can work through young people who don't have a direction. God can work through poor people. God can work through rich people despite uh, being drawn to riches sometimes. God can work through people who have no name. God can work through people who have a big name. God's not dependent on the people he uses. Instead, he uses people that at the end of history, everyone will know that it is God who did it. That's the encouragement that we have. You may be just a mother. My friends, this genealogy is filled with just mothers. You may be just a (coughs) kind of drone at your job. You go in, you sit down at a cubicle, you don't get to talk, you don't make any big decisions. Well, guess what? Jesus' genealogy is filled with drones. Joseph was a carpenter, a no-name in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in a place called Nazareth, which if you've been to Nazareth, even Jews to this day are like, Messiah coming from here is not very likely. God works to the unimpressive. And so the, the thing is, is let us then, as people, let us go low. Let us be humble. Let us not boast of our skills and our abilities. Let us not boast of what's good about ourselves. Instead, let's boast about the God who can use jawbones of donkeys to kill entire armies, who can use a little shepherd boy to slay a giant, who can use a cross to fulfill redemption. Let us go low because the lower we go, the more God is glorified when he works through us. One thing I'm learning as I'm becoming an old man, I'm not an old man yet, but I'm working on it. Year by year, I get a little closer. You know, one of the things I'm learning is that this life really is little. What I bring to God really is little. It didn't matter if I have 80 years on this earth. What I can accomplish for God is extremely little in the grand scheme of things. Doctorates are infinitely small. Books, infinitely small. Sermons, infinitely small. Pastoring a church, infinitely small. 
And it's not because of who I am and what I build that God will redeem the world. It is because of who he is. So go low, Christian. I think we see as a third lesson uh, that Jesus is the climax of history. You see that Matthew breaks up his genealogy into three parts. Abraham to David, David to deportation, deportation to Jesus. And then he says in in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation uh, uh, to Babylon, 14 generations, and the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now his history is symmetrical, 14, 14, 14, beginning with Abraham and ending with the exile. And I think what he's showing here is at the climax of all of Israel's history, at the pinnacle of it all, at the peak of it all, stands Jesus. The rest of the gospel writers say this as well. Mark 1.15, the time is, what? Fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Likewise, the apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time came, at the perfect time, at the right moment in history, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, what does this mean for us? Here's what I think it means. It means Jesus is the center of history, not me, not you, not our countries, not our dignitaries, not our leaders, not our political party, nor any other human agency. We're, we're not the center of history. We're not the fulfillment of history. History doesn't have its eyes on us. The kings and kingdoms, the nations and their presidents, dignitaries, leaders are mere blips on the radar of history. The genealogy subtly moves through history, reminding us that the crowning point of it all is Jesus himself who wears the crown. Kingdoms die in fate. I think you've got to hear Daniel too, where these great empires, where you have Uh, Assyria and Babylon and the Greeks and the Romans and these massive empires smashed and turned into chaff, blown away in the wind by a little pebble of God's kingdom. I think you have to hear words like from Pastor John Piper, who rightly says one day America and all of its presidents will be a footnote in history. Only God's kingdom will never end. Now just to be really humbling... One day you and I will be a footnote in history. Only King Jesus endures forever. We have immortality, but it's not our name that's sung in heaven forever and ever. We have eternal life, but it's not at our name that the nations bow. Jesus is the climax of history. Russia, China, India, UK, and all the nations of the earth. There is hope in no other, no other king, no other kingdom. Jesus' kingdom will stand forever. In the words of Daniel 7, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. May we never, as people of God, call people to the false hope of the world, of politicians, human leaders, societies, in our children, or in our human progress, or in ourselves. May we never, ever put false hopes in ourselves. May we be people who speak in such a way that we're undaunted by what's going on around us. We have a mighty fortress. And who is that? What is that? Mighty fortress is our God.
cleft in the rock. That's Jesus. We have a kingdom that is unshakable in a world that is being shaken. Before I came in here today, I prayed. I prayed. I didn't have much time to um, to pray, so I just I prayed a very simple prayer. Jesus, I'm not the hope of tomorrow. These people are not the hope of tomorrow. Lord, let me preach this sermon. Let me die and be forgotten, and let Jesus be remembered forever. Let Jesus be remembered forever. Jesus's kingdom is the one that stands forever. He has fulfilled history. Now we come to the final lesson. And it's one that's woven, I, I think you've heard it a couple of times. Not to be repetitive, but it is repetitive in Scripture. Jesus has come to end our exile from God. I, I just think as Christians, that, that doesn't need to be a boring, repetitive lesson. That needs to be something that we bask in and we repeat in over and over and over. Jesus has ended our exile from God. Jesus has ended separation from God. The moment that becomes a boring lesson or we think we've got that or that's elementary, my friends, we're not basking in the gospel. Jesus has ended our exile from God. The garden has been opened again in Christ. The temple curtain has been split so that we can walk through in confidence. Jesus' flesh was torn. The earth was shaken. Every rock split the temple itself in shatters because we have come to see that it is not about a building, it is about a person. And Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. When we couldn't be with God, God took on flesh and he came to be with us. He died on a cross taking my sin so that he could be found just, so that he could show his grace. He died in my place. My substitutionary sacrifice, my atonement, my Lamb of God on the altar, bearing my sin, my scapegoat that's sent into Ezalel so that I could be with God, the one who goes in for me when I could not go in for himself, died, bloodied, bruised, broken, killed, and buried, and then risen again. And so now I have this message. We have peace with God. Exile's over. I don't know how bad your week has been. I don't know how bad your marriage is. I don't know how bad your job is. I don't know what you feel. I don't know the heartbreak that you have. I will say this. Regardless of what's happened to you this week, you have peace with God if you believe in Jesus Christ. You are not alienated anymore. There is now no condemnation. Isn't that what Scripture says? For those who are in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. Have you ever gone to bed just realizing that that there is now no condemnation? There is not one angel that will throw a stone at you for your sin. There's not one cricket in the universe that could chirp an accusation against you. You are forgiven. It is finished. Blood is on the mercy seat. Blood is on the altar. Blood is on the tabernacle. Blood is covering the people. We are clean.
And so Hebrews says, draw near. You who are far off, come near. Jesus comes at the perfect time, right after the exile here in this genealogy. It's amazing that Israel, deported to Babylon, broken and separated from God, all under this separation that's already there from Adam. And and then Jesus comes. Do you know God and do you have a relationship with God? Now this is the gospel, the good news. Matthew sets out in this genealogy of all things. Jesus is the king who was exalted to glory in the humiliation of the cross. He is the king whose power and victory was displayed by death and who was vindicated by his resurrection. Jesus is the son of David, the promised Messiah, who is eternal and who is the righteous king for whom the whole world has awaited since the fall. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth that the genealogy gives us. We pray, Father, that you will help us, God, to continue to trust in you in all things. We love you, and we pray this in your Son's name.